0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McLarty.
1: not to like that song. First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul has been writing to encourage the folks at Thessalonica. They've been undergoing a tremendous amount of persecution. Last week at the end of the lesson, we saw that Paul had, as part of his encouragement to them, explained to them. That the persecution they were enduring was typical of the type of persecution that the saints in Judea were also suffering. Paul is going to continue to argue that persecution is just part of the package of Christianity. And as we have been reading Paul's encouraging words, we've also been able to draw from it A tremendous amount of theology. You can feel the theological underpinnings of Paul's writing. And one of the things that we're going to see today that is fundamental to Christianity and fundamental, in fact, to the entire Bible, fundamental to the things that the prophets have said in the Old Testament and fundamental to every New Testament author, is the reality of the eschatological coming of Christ. In other words, Christianity is not just about the Christ who was here, the Messiah that was on the planet. It's not just about him dying to pay our sin penalty and our sin debt. It's not just about the fact that he after his crucifixion, lived again, resurrected, walked and talked with people. It's not just about the fact that he sailed up off the planet and is currently sitting at the right hand of God. It is, just as importantly, also about the fact that he's coming again. The first time that he was here, he accomplished what I think were sort of the prerequisites for what he's planning to do long-term. He's planning on ruling and reigning over his kingdom. He's planning on sitting on David's throne, regathering the 12 tribes. All the Gentile nations will have blessings that will flow from Jerusalem. All of that is coming, but first he came to achieve redemption through his death and resurrection. Which is why we're told that he is coming back a second time without regard to sin. Because the first time he came to take care of that sin thing. So that all the inhabitants and residents of his kingdom to come are already paid for. They're already redeemed. He already took care of that part. He's coming back to complete. It's like the, the consummation of his redemptive work. The redemptive work was so much more than just, okay, he finished what he came to do and now you get to go to heaven. It's okay, he did what he came to do and fully accomplished it and said it was finished so that you can also be part of the kingdom to come and so that you can have residency in the new Jerusalem. There's a whole lot that he is still going to accomplish when he comes back his second return. And so, as Christian people, we are constantly looking forward to and anticipating his return. That'll be a good day. And in fact, you see that kind of language from Paul's pen all the time, where he identifies Christians as those who love his appearance. And we do, we love his appearing, we love the idea of his return, we love the idea of finally getting out of this fleshly world, this sinful world, this rebellious world, and going to join our Savior, the same way that Paul said, absent from the body, is present with the Lord. What great presence it will be when he actually comes back to get us that all is part and parcel of what Paul defines as genuine Christianity. And if you extricate that from the rest of Christianity, you don't have a full, complete understanding of what Christianity actually is and what the Bible actually teaches. That thinking so permeates Paul's language that he can't even compliment the saints at Thessalonica without saying... That part of the crown that he is going to receive, part of the ultimate exaltation of his ministry, the sure proof of the value of what he did in his traveling, in his persecution, in his preaching, the ultimate proof of that, he says, is you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. That, to Paul, is the ultimate verification, the vindication of everything he's accomplished so far, everything that he's done, the persecution he has endured, the preaching that he has done is all validated when Christ comes back and there are saints with Christ who are there because Paul preached the gospel of Christ to them. Paul sees that as the ultimate vindication of everything he's going through. And he can't help but say that in the midst of saying all these complimentary things to the Thessalonican church. So between verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians and verse 19, Paul goes from, yeah, you're being persecuted. Yeah, persecution is part of the package. Yeah, you shouldn't be surprised by persecution. It's the same thing that the saints everywhere are going through and then transitions from, yes, you're going through persecution to, oh yeah, and Christ is coming back and you're going to be in his presence when he comes back and that's what's going to make the persecution worth it. So the only way that we can endure this life as Christian people in this sinful world is to have that looking forward. That anticipation, that realization that Christ is coming back and that makes it worth it. Look, let's just admit that life down here on planet Earth can get tough sometimes. And sometimes it gets painful and sometimes it gets lonely. And people, as you know, are just no darn good. (laughs) And they're gonna let you down. And people are going to tell you things and make you promises and then not keep them. And you're going to be disappointed. And you're going to get your feelings hurt. And you're going to get your body hurt. Some of you, like let's say young Christian and Isabella here, you don't know yet the physical pain that's coming your way. But uh, ask some of us older folks. It's coming. Enjoy it while you got it right now. All of that, the endurance of this life, the fact that we get older and we're decaying and we're dying, the fact that this world is a sinful world is all going to be worth it ultimately when Jesus Christ appears and we are with him. That's our hope. That's what makes Christianity worth it. So we're going to start reading In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 at verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Why does Paul point that out? Because it is in Judea, it is in Jerusalem where Christianity got its first foothold. Christianity grew from Jerusalem from among the people who actually saw Jesus, who saw his miracles, who heard his teaching. One of the things historically that I find most astounding about Christianity is that it did get its start in Jerusalem. To me, this is an indication of the truth of Christianity, because if Jesus, let's say, didn't exist which is an argument that people still try to bring out every once in a while. The critics of Christianity will try to say, Jesus, no, he wasn't a real person. He was a bit of mythology that grew out of Jewish mysticism or whatever. He wasn't a real person. If he wasn't a real person who actually lived in Judea, why, at the exact time that he is said to be alive in Jerusalem, Why then did Christianity blossom in Jerusalem? Those would be the people who knew whether he existed. Those would be the people who actually did or did not see him. Like Peter on the day of Pentecost starts stating facts. And along the way in his facts, he keeps saying, as you knew, as you saw, as you know, you were witnesses to these things. What if they were witnesses to these things? What if he actually never did live? Well, then this whole claim is completely pointless. The fact that Christianity began and grew from Jerusalem and then that the people who embraced it were persecuted, well, what if it was a lie? What if he didn't ever exist? What if the people who founded Christianity just made up all this stuff? Would they endure persecution for that? Would they be willing to go along with the level of persecution, death, torture, that they endured? Look at everything that Paul endured. Would he endure that for something he made up? Well, no, of course not. So the fact that Paul points out that there are churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea It's kind of astounding, because those would be the people who actually knew whether this person existed, whether he did these miracles, whether this is actually his teaching, and they are the people who endured the harshest persecution for the profession of Jesus Christ. Well, that is historically untenable unless Jesus actually did everything we read in the Bible. He actually said these things. He actually did these miracles. He actually died. He actually rose. These things actually happened. Or that story doesn't get any footing in Jerusalem. Do you understand me? For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same suffering. At the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. The churches in Judea suffered great persecution from the Jews. Why would that be? Because the Jewish leaders were out of a job if, in fact, Jesus was who he said he was. If he was indeed the Son of God, and if he indeed did away with the entire Jewish sacrificial system if in fact he fulfilled the law and the prophets, just like he said, if he actually accomplished all of that, then the Pharisees have no more authority over people. Jesus was walking around freeing people. Jesus was saying, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Meanwhile, the Pharisees are like, no, 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 you don't have freedom. No, you have to continue in the legalism that you've been raised in. By the way, this is the same Jesus who said to those very Pharisees that they were whitewashed sepulchers. He's the very one who called them hypocrites. He's the very one who said, you compass land and sea to make one proselyte, one convert, and then you make him twice the child of hell that you are. Okay, so Jesus called them graves, whitewashed graves. You look clean on the outside. Inside, All uncleanness and dead men's bones, he said of them. He also called them children of the devil, twice the child of hell that you are. Okay, so let's assume for just a moment that he actually is the son of God and that everything he said is the truth and that a lie is not within it. Well, then that means that those people are indeed children of hell. So are they going to take that laying down? No, no, these are the guys who are used to being in charge. These are the people who have religious authority. These are the people who used the temple and the system of the temple in order to impose their own traditions on the conscience of people so that they could control them. And then Jesus comes along, starts setting people free. You can see why they would want to shut that whole Christian thing down. So they persecuted Christians in Judea. Paul says, you then are suffering by the hands of your own countrymen the same way that the saints in Jerusalem suffered at the hands of the Jews. In other words, Paul draws a complete parallel between the Jews suffering in Jerusalem and the Thessalonians suffering in their cities there in Macedonia. And he says, this is the proof of the reality of your Christianity, the fact that you are enduring that kind of pushback, that kind of suffering, that kind of persecution. That is just part of, as I said, the package of Christianity. Persecution is going to come. At this moment in the world, there are millions of Christians outside of the United States who are being persecuted, actively persecuted at this very moment. We are so very fortunate because we are not suffering that level of active persecution at this moment. But if you don't know that persecution is part of the Christian package, when the persecution does reach your doorstep... You're going to think that that is some kind of aberration. You're going to think, what happened, God? I thought you liked me. Why is this happening to me? I've been following the course of what Christ has said. Why is persecution here now? It's part of the package. It's part of what it is to belong to Christ in this God-forsaken, sin-soaked world. And the vast majority of Christianity suffers persecution on a regular basis every day that you don't suffer persecution, be grateful. And then when it comes your way, recognize that that's part of it and look to Christ for the patience and the endurance to get through the persecution that is on behalf of Christ. You, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. <coughs> the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and killed the prophets and drove us out. And They are not pleasing to God, but they are hostile to all men. And they're hindering us From speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Now Paul may be talking about immediate wrath. I think he's talking eschatological wrath there. I think he's talking about the fact that God is ultimately going to judge on behalf of his people and against those who persecute his people. But notice again that Paul cannot talk about Christianity without talking in these great eschatological terms. He sees Christianity as being an ultimate story. It's not about right here and now. Far too much of what is called Christianity in the modern church is very concerned with what you're getting out of it right here and now. You're going to be healed of every disease right here and now. You're going to get a job promotion, and you're going to get a bigger car, and all your children are going to run faster and jump higher. Everything's going to go good for you if you just come to Christ. That's the way that Christianity is sold far too often in the world but the reality of Christianity is that there is an ultimacy to Christianity. It's not about you right now. It's about what God has planned for you, both eschatologically at the end of this world, that kind of terminology, but what he's got planned for you in eternity. I mean, can you begin to conceive of New Jerusalem? Can you begin to imagine the glories of heaven? Can you imagine being joint heir with Christ in everything that God, the creator of heaven and earth, chooses to give to Jesus Christ, and then you get to be joint heir with him? What is that compared to what you might assemble or have or achieve in this lifetime? This life is a vapor. This life goes by quick. Can I get a witness? And when it does, you leave here with nothing. Nothing you've assembled, nothing that you have, nothing that you own, nothing that you bought. Nothing goes with you. It's just you in front of God. And he's either going to judge you and throw you into outer darkness, or he's going to make you joint heir with all the glory, with all the splendor, with all the eternity, with all the ever-living that his son has accomplished on your behalf and qualified you for. That's a much better deal. So, so Paul speaks in these grand, eschatological, long-term kind of ways. And then in verse 17, he says, but we, brethren... Having been bereft of you for a short while, in person but not in spirit, we were made all the more eager with great desire to see your face. So Paul had been driven out of Thessalonica. At the moment that he's writing this, he's probably in Athens or Corinth. And as he's writing these things, he's saying, I wanted to get back to you. And in fact, we as a group, Me, Timothy, Silas, we all wanted to come and see you. We have great desire to see your face. So in verse 18, he says, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. He's pointing out that he individually, whatever Timothy and Silas wanted, who, by the way, actually did return while Paul remained in Athens, Paul says, I, Paul, more than once I wanted to come to you. And then he uses this very interesting phrase, and Satan thwarted us. Now, in what way did Satan thwart Paul and Timothy, Silas? How how did Satan thwart them from doing exactly what they want to do go back to Thessalonica go back to Macedonia go and visit the churches you know Paul has a habit of that his second missionary journey started with let's go back and visit the churches again and see how it's going he wants to go back and check on them he doesn't just convert them and then leave them to themselves and since he couldn't be there in person he writes this letter to them to express to them how badly he wants to be back with them, but Satan thwarted us. I think what he's saying is that there were people. Among Jerusalem, it was the Jews. There in Thessalonica, it was their fellow countrymen. It was people who opposed the plan of God. Listen to how Paul described them. They're the ones who killed the prophets, who drove us out, they're not pleasing to God, they're hostile to all men, they're hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. I think that's what Paul is referring to and saying those people who oppose the forward movement of the gospel, those people who oppose the work of God, those people who are in opposition to the work that we are doing are driven by Satan himself. That it is Satan, the opposer, Satan, the accuser, Satan, who would love to have this message completely squashed, obliterated. It is Satan who is driving these people in the things that they do. Now, if that is Paul's attitude, then I think we can rightly take a look at the world today in its Christian opposition. We can look at the people these days who are trying to shut down Christianity even here in America. We can look at the people who are opposed to this message going forward, and we can rightly say along with Paul, they're doing that because it's Satan who is driving them. They are the willing servants of Satan himself in their opposition to the things of God. And I think that's why Paul, at the end of listing all the things that these people have done, hindering us from going and preaching to Gentiles so that those Gentiles can be saved, can you think of anything, from God's perspective, anything as devious, anything as bad as trying to stop the forward advancement of the gospel which forward movement of the gospel would result in gentiles being saved and they're stopping that movement from moving forward well from god's perspective that's just plain evil that's just plain godlessness and sinfulness and so paul goes so far as to say these are the accomplices these are the people who are playing right into the hand of satan in the fact that they oppose this message. So why would Paul say all that? Because he's trying to encourage them in the midst of their persecution. And he's encouraging them by saying, the people who are doing this are not pleasing to God. They are hostile to all men. They're wicked. They are opposers. And they're hindering us from speaking to people because they don't want to see people get saved. Well, that's just wicked, which is why Paul could say the result is that they always fill up the measure of their sins because wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So knowing that God is going to pour out his wrath and his judgment on these people Knowing that they don't have the spirit of God, knowing that they don't care about the things of Jesus Christ, they go out and follow their natural proclivities, and the natural proclivities of human beings is in opposition to God. It's total depravity. If humans are not changed. If human beings are not inhabited by the Spirit of God, if you don't have that heart of stone taken out of your body and replaced with a heart of flesh, if you are not inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God who becomes the governor and driver on your thinking and behavior, if he doesn't open your eyes, if he doesn't open your ears, then you are quite naturally going to oppose everything that is God. Everything that is Christianity, everything that results in the salvation of people, you're going to be opposed to because you yourself are under the wrath of God. And why would you be like that? Well, Paul says, because of Satan. It's Satan who thwarted us. Yes, he used people to accomplish it. Yes, he used the opposers who would stop us, who would beat us, who would make us run from city to city. Yes, but it's Satan ultimately that's driving that whole plan. So, so far, Paul has talked about wrath, big eschatological concept. So far, he has also talked about Satan and God. Okay, these are huge concepts. We're talking about God and Satan, ultimate good and the evil of this world. Great big concepts and then Paul tops it off with the best of all large eschatological concepts, the return of Christ. And he says, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once And yet Satan thwarted us. And why did he want to come to them? Despite everything he'd been through, despite the torture, despite all of the persecution, why did he want to come see them so badly? For who is our hope or our joy or our crown of exaltation? Who in the midst of the difficulty of this ministry... Who in the difficulty of this travel and the torture and the persecution that I'm enduring, why do I put up with this and where do I find joy in the midst of it? Who is our confident expectation and our joy? Who is the very crown of our exaltation? The chief thing that we exalt in. The chief thing that we celebrate That makes us endure this and go through this. Who is that? Well, it's you. Is it not even you? And not just you now. Not just you presently. Not just you and your faith currently. But you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. When he comes back. When he comes to get his church And you're with him, Paul says, that makes everything I've gone through worth it. That is why I endure. That is why I preach. That is why I take the beatings. Because ultimately, it's about you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. Now, that Greek word coming right there is the word parousia. And we need to talk about that word a little bit. Do you mind if I get all theological on you for a few minutes? Sure. Uh, 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 That's what we're here for. Okay. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. The word parousia occurs 24 times in the New Testament. It's a compound word that's composed of the preposition para which actually means alongside or beside. We've seen that in a lot of Greek words that we have defined in the past. So you should be familiar with that para preposition. And then the word I me, which means to be. If you know some Greek phraseology, you may know that when Jesus says I am, that that is the Greek ego I me. Ego, which just moved into our language, is ego because it is self-referential. I me is the second part of the phrase I am because that word I me shows existence. And so this word parousia means to exist or to be right alongside of. When we think of Christ, we think of him as being in heaven. We think of him as being at the right hand of God but however we conceive of him, he's out there somewhere, physically speaking. But there's going to be a day when he's <coughs> right here, right beside us. And that's what the word parousia really means, to be right alongside. It's the sense of presence. It's more than just his coming. It's his being here. Six of the New Testament occurrences of the term parousia have that simple meaning of arrival or presence of some individual or some group of individuals. For instance, in First Corinthians 16, 17, Paul wrote, I rejoice at the coming, the parousia, of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, And so he's just saying they came to me and I'm just glad that they came here because they were present with him. Or 2 Corinthians 10.10, which says, For they say, speaking of Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence, his soma, his body, soma parousia, is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Okay, so that's the simple use of the word parousia. Now, the reason that I am stressing that is because in some circles, in talking about the return of Christ, especially those who believe that Christ's second coming and his gathering of the church is a singular event, whenever you want to place that in time and history, if you believe that Christ comes, gathers his church, and then continues to the planet so that his second coming and the gathering of the church are one event, they will tell you that parousia is a word that was used for like visiting dignitaries, visiting kings or princes, that when they would come to a city, when you would see them arriving outside the gates, that you would send a company of people out to meet them, and then you would all return to the city collectively as a group. And that it would be the way that they would define the word parousia. And so they would say, so the parousia of Christ is that Christ appears in the heavens. We go to meet him, but then we do sort of the cosmic U-turn, and we come back with him so that we're back here on the planet with him during that period of time. But you can't get that out of the Greek word parousia, especially when you see it being used of things like Stephanus and Fortunatus came to see me and I rejoice that they're coming. Does that mean that they came and we went out to meet them and we turned around and we came back? It doesn't have that meaning at all. Or when they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence, his personal parousia is unimpressive. Does that have anything to do? with a traveling dignitary who we went out to see, and then we all turned around, and we all came back to the city. Well, no, it doesn't mean that. So what I'm trying to prove to you first is that the word parousia means Christ right here, right now, alongside. And that moment of the appearance of Christ is an eschatological appearance. That is, as I said earlier, the consummation of all of his redemptive work so far. And so as a result, the remaining 18 New Testament occurrences of parousia have this eschatological connotation. But in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8-10, it's used of the lawless one, the Antichrist. Paul, again, writing eschatologically, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8-10 says, then that lawless one will be revealed, that's the word apocalypto, If that sounds familiar, apocalypsis is the word from which we get revelation. It means the unveiling, the revealing of. So that lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance that's epiphania, which is the word from which we get epiphany. He will bring to an end at his appearance of his coming, parousia. So, both the word appearance and coming are used to describe Christ returning and slaying the lawless one with the breath of his mouth. That is, verse 9, the one whose coming, parousia, is in accord with the activity of Satan. So, here parousia is being used of Satan. And the appearance of the Antichrist, therefore, I'm just trying to prove again, even though this is eschatological, it is not about us going out to meet him and then welcoming him and returning with him. That definition just simply cannot be derived from the many ways that the word parousia is used in the New Testament. Have I bored anybody yet? I just like word derivation and... That is, the one who's coming, the parousia is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. If that sounds intriguing to you and you want to know more, stick around till we get to 2 Thessalonians and we'll dig deeper into that. Now the remaining 16 occurrences of the word parousia in the New Testament all relate to Christ and are all basically eschatological in other words the entire teaching of the New Testament makes it clear that Christ's parousia is in fact his appearing what we know as his or what we would call his second coming and that's the event that we're looking forward to And then people will argue about, and we'll get into this more as we continue through these Thessalonian letters. Then people argue about well, then is there one coming or is there two comings? Does he come for his church, gather them into the clouds, ever be with the Lord, and then come back later and make his appearance like the lightning flashing from the east to the west when all eyes behold him? Is that two separate events, or are they all one in the same event, the second coming? Uh, I've heard people make the argument, how many second comings are there? It says second, so you, you folks who believe that the church is going to be taken away before the final day of the Lord, you postulate a second and a third and a fourth coming. And of course, the answer to that is, how many appearances of Christ were there in his first coming? There were a whole bunch of them. Not only was he the babe in the manger, but then he was dead, and then he rose, and then Paul says, and he appeared, and he appeared to the 500, most of whom are alive to this day, and he appeared to the apostles, and he appeared to me, last of all, as one born out of due time. So, okay, how many appearances is that? And then he appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos, Later he appeared to the apostles while he was cooking fish, while they were out catching no fish. How many appearances are we talking about here? And in fact, the initial appearances that happened sometime between 30 and 33 AD after his resurrection, but then John was on the Isle of Patmos early 90s AD, so there's a 60-year gap before the next appearance, and we call all of that his first incarnation. Then a couple thousand years pass. And so is it any big deal if he shows up for his church prior to coming back to set up his kingdom and rule with a rod of iron? Is there any big deal? Is there any incongruity between... The events of his first coming and the events of his second coming? I argue no. We can call that the second coming, and he can come for his church, and he can come later to establish his kingdom and rule with his rod of iron. There is no incongruity there. Do you see it? Okay. Just wanted to make sure I wasn't losing anybody. We can argue about the timing later. We'll talk about how long before... Christ ultimately returned, he comes for his church. We'll get into that as we continue through the Thessalonian letters, but for the moment just notice how often Paul, in encouraging the church at Thessalonica, speaks in these big eschatological terms, ultimate judgment, ultimate wrath, the ultimate return of Christ, our gathering to him, his present appearance with us and the joy that we are going to feel, the exaltation that is going to be the result of the return of Christ. I know for me, I can't speak for any of the rest of you, but I know that when Christ returns and I finally am accepted by him, whether or not I get to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, once I see him and I fall at his feet and I am accepted by him, There's a sense in which I'm going to go, whew, (laughs) that's good. I've been been working toward this, and it's a relief. I mean, I, I believe in your sovereignty. I believe in your finished work. I believe that we are completely secure in the finished work of Christ. I believe all that, but I also know that I'm still pressing toward that mark of the high calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm still waiting for that day. I'm still anticipating it. And when it actually occurs, what a huge relief and a huge joy it's going to be Amen. to step from this sinful world into eternity with my Savior. Amen. I feel like we're all just going to collectively go, good, we are made it. Yeah. Good, we're there. Who is our hope? Who is our joy? Or who is our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. How much Paul loved these people. And how much he was willing to say, when Christ comes and you are gathered to him and you are part of the eternal church to the glory of Jesus Christ, that is what's going to make all of this worth it. It would be real easy at this point for me to personalize that. And so if you will indulge me for just one moment. I remember talking to Elder Ward one time. He had been in the ministry for so many years. And he said to me, the thing that really worries me is that I wonder week by week as I see these. It was a large church and a large congregation. He said, I worry week by week. And I wonder how many of these people really understand what I'm saying. Because, you know, we live in America, where go to church is just kind of what you do, especially here in the South. Well, we go to church. And you don't really, apparently, discern whether or not this is a church that is feeding your soul or just entertaining you. And I say that because there are a lot of entertainment-based churches out here. And there are a lot of people going to those entertainment-based churches, where they don't seem to be learning a whole lot of Bible And yet they get up and they go to church because, well, that's what you do. And so I relate. I understand now that I've been at this long enough, I know that there are people out there on the Internet listening. I I know the people show up here over the last 22 years, and I see different faces. Fortunately, sometimes I see some of the same faces, which really makes me happy. But I see the different faces that come and go. And I remember John Riesinger's words where he said that that's part of the life of a church, that people come and people go, and that you just have to kind of roll with that. But I'm up here regularly just pouring my heart out. I'm up here just desperately trying to tell you with as much emotion and as much passion as I possibly can, trying to get you to pay attention to these things that, concern your ever-living, never-dying soul. And I wonder who's hearing it. I mean, really hearing it. Who's really getting it? Well, the ultimate proof of the value of this ministry, just like the ultimate value of Paul's, or any other ministry in the history of the last 2,000 years of the church, the ultimate value of that ministry is going to be evidenced when Christ returns and so we just endure till that time we just keep doing what we're doing I'm going through books of the Bible I know I've already taught through they're already on our website and we're doing it again and sometimes I hear myself say things that I think I've said this these people know this And I'm going to keep saying it, I'm going to keep saying it, I'm going to keep driving it, I'm going to keep this impassioned plea forward in the hope that when Christ comes back, you'll be there. Because that's why we do what we do. That's the value of preaching Christ over and over and over again, because when you walk out these doors and go back to your regular life, you're going to forget You're going to go back to the stuff that you normally do, and you're going to go back to your job, and you're going to go back to your habits, and you're going to, and you'll forget. And so I'm so happy when you show up here again, and I get another shot at telling you the good news again, in the hope that when Christ appears, you're there. So be there. (laughs) How many years have you all heard me say, be the Christian? Be the Christian. Because ultimately, big eschatologically, big eternally, you're either in Christ or you're not. And if you're not, there is wrath waiting for you. And if you are, there is eternal joy waiting for you. And so the same way that Paul felt this great love for these people and that great love was demonstrated in his desire to see them saved, in his desire to see them in the presence of Christ at his appearing, that's what motivates me. That's what drives me to do this. But I'll keep doing this and saying this in the hope that you will turn to Christ that you will look to him, that you will trust him, and that you'll be present at his appearing. Chapter 3. Therefore, says Paul, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone alone and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. As we've been going through the early parts of this letter, I've been giving you some of the background and history from the book of Acts so that we can kind of understand Paul and Timothy and Silas' movements through Macedonia. So at this moment... Circumstances are keeping Paul, as we just read, keeping Paul from returning to Thessalonica personally, which he dearly wanted to do, so he's going to send Timothy and Silas back to encourage the saints. Evidently, Paul traveled from Berea, after he left Thessalonica, down to Berea, and then some of those Berean Christians accompanied him toward Athens because Timothy and Silas were then heading north. But but then when he gets to Athens, he also writes that he wants Timothy and Silas to come to him. That's in Acts 17, starting at verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews now these, the Bereans, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea. Also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately, the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. Now, those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, those brethren left. So Paul is in Athens. Timothy and Silas have been left in Berea. Their mutual concern for the Thessalonian church and the Thessalonian saints caused Paul and Silas to send Timothy back to Thessalonica. And that's what we're reading about right here. In chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, we, that's Paul and Silas, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. In Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 1, we read, that Silas and Timothy both returned to Macedonia to rejoin Paul. Ultimately, they end up in Corinth, which is where Paul headed after being in Athens. And you read about that in Acts 18, verse 1. After these things, he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, Having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, so he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue, that's Paul, he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So that's the movement between Timothy and Silas and Paul. They finally all regather in Corinth, but while Paul is in Athens, he and Silas send Timothy back to Thessalonica because Paul cares so much for the saints there, and he himself cannot get there because of the amount of persecution and hindrance, including what we just read, that when he got to Berea, there were some of the Jews from Thessalonica who even came to Berea to persecute Paul. So everywhere he went, there was nonstop persecution, which he says is Satan thwarting him, Satan hindering him from doing what he wants, which was to go to Thessalonica. But... When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. So he's saying, I'm undergoing affliction you're undergoing affliction, and of course it would be disturbing. That word, by the way, the Greek word uh, translated disturbing is just a really interesting word. It's a picture word of a dog wagging his tail, believe it or not, because it means to be unsettled, unstable. It's that picture of going back and forth all the time. Happy dogs, happy tails, that's the picture that Paul is drawing, that you're being tossed about and you're unstable. And that's what he's calling these afflictions and how it has disturbed you. So that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. That's the reason I'm sending Timothy to you, is so that he will encourage you in your faith, so that you won't be disturbed, rocked back and forth by all these afflictions that you're undergoing. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this okay we talk a lot about God's predestination we talk a lot about God's sovereignty and we usually talk about God's predestinary will in good stuff we say well we're being saved because God foreordained that or when we see the the blessings of this life it's easy to say well yes well God foreordained that But here Paul is saying the persecutions, the afflictions, the difficulties of this life is also part of God's predestinary will. And that's hard for us to get a hold of. I mean, it's the same way that God describes himself in the book of Isaiah, where he says that he's the one who creates light, and he's the one that creates darkness. He's the one that creates good and blessings, and he's the one that produces raw, the word for trouble difficulties in this life God takes credit for all of it if God is absolutely sovereign then both the blessings of this life and the troubles of this life are in his hand because if he's in complete control if he's absolutely sovereign and then some trouble gets to you that he didn't mean to get to you then he failed or there's some power in his universe other than him that managed to get to you but if he's absolutely sovereign, then whatever you're going through at this moment is exactly what he determined you're going to go through. And that really answers those questions that I brought up earlier where I said when we go through persecution, it's easy for us to start thinking this is an aberration or gee, God, why would you do this to me? Or why me? Or I thought you loved me. Or if you know that everything that comes across your path is in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God, then you're more willing to endure those things as you go through it. And again, Paul writes that very thing to the Corinthians when he says there's no trouble, there's no trial, there's no difficulty that has taken you, but such as is common to man. You're not being singled out. God isn't just out to get you because you're going through some difficulty. You're going through the common difficulties of this life. And there is no trouble, no persecution, no trials taken you, but such as is common to man. And then Paul writes, but God is faithful. That's good to know. Because then he says, who will, with the persecution, provide a way of escape? so that you'll be able to bear it. So if you know that God is the one who brought it, and that God is the one who will give you the strength to endure it, and that God is the one who's going to help you escape it, then you have the confidence as you're going through it that you're going to get through it, and you're going to be able to bear it. Here, I'll make it easy. Have any of you ever gone through a period of your life, some circumstance in your life, where you thought to yourself, you might have even said it out loud, I'm not going to get through this. This is going to kill me. Has anybody had that feeling? Yeah. I mean, whether it's a sickness or whether it's a difficulty, whether it's a heartbreak, we can feel so distraught that we reach the point where we say, this is too much, God. I'm not going to make it. This is going to kill me. Okay, so how many of you who raised your hands died. Paul raised his hand. Jeff, can you go back there and correct your son, please? None of you died. You got through it. The thing you thought was going to kill you, you endured it. You got through it. Was that because you're doing so good? Is that because you're so strong? Is that because your flesh decided that it was going to buck up under the pressure? No, the trouble came from God, the trial came from God, the endurance came from God, the delivery came from God. And that's why you're still here to talk about it. And so knowing that Paul can say that I'm sending Timothy to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions Because you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. Paul has said that so many times now. Look, this is all part of God's plan. It's part of the package. If you're going to believe in Christ in this sin-soaked world, then you should expect some persecution to go along with it. But God knew it was coming. And God will strengthen you and give you the endurance to get through it. For indeed, when we were with you, We kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. Paul keeps saying, this is part of the package. This is what it is to be a Christian. But what you have to remember in the midst of the difficulties of this life is you have to remember that big, ultimate, eschatological plan that God has laid out in front of you And that he has already begun it. He has already given you the down payment of it. He has put his Holy Spirit in you. Christ has already finished the work of paying your sin debt. You are now fully prepared by the finished work of Christ and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That seal of the Holy Spirit. You are ultimately prepared now fully, completely for the kingdom to come. You're ready to be a resident in the new Jerusalem you're ready for the appearance of Christ you should not be afraid of the appearance of Christ you should be loving the appearance of Christ you should be anticipating it you should be waiting anxiously hopefully for that day when Christ in his parousia is right here beside you because that is the very same Christ who already prepared you for that event That's the very same Christ who already paid your sin debt. It's the very same Christ whose finished work brought the Holy Spirit to indwell you, sealing you for the day of your ultimate redemption. He has done absolutely everything necessary, not only to save you eternally, but to make you a qualified resident of everything he is still planning in the future. It's a grand plan that is made by a very grand, sovereign God, that, thank goodness, we cannot mess up. And that is why Paul said the ultimate proof of this gospel going out and redeeming and saving people is that those same people are going to stand in the presence of Jesus Christ, fully redeemed, fully bought and paid for, And we will join him in the glory that only he deserves. That's what Christianity is.